Good morning, Parkview. Cold enough? I, I had the uh, distinct privilege of having family home over Christmas, and uh, they're still at the house. So uh, my son-in-law's young and healthy and full of vigor and vim went out and shoveled for me last night. But all they had to do was around my car because, uh, as some of you may know, uh, Iona and I moved up to North Liberty this uh, year to a condo, and they do all of the other stuff for us. So there are people, actually strangers, on my front porch shoveling out our walk and everything else. Uh, it's great. Sometimes it's really good to be old. I like that, you know, <laughs> get some great privileges. This morning, we are uh, opening up God's Word, and we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 1. Um, so if you'd like to join me in that, get your Bibles out, and we will venture into that. But first, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you uh, for the songs that we had this morning, for the worship. I praise you for just the truths uh, that are contained therein. We pray, Lord, that as we uh, now focus on your word, whether we're at home watching uh, virtually or if we're here in the auditorium, I pray, Lord, that you will unite our hearts, our minds uh, in unity, uh, in the, the person of your son, Jesus Christ, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, those things that distract us, that call our attention, we pray in the name of Jesus that you will quiet them and that our minds will be able to absorb uh, what your word has to say today. Lord, as we look at your Bible, uh, the strength of our life, the uh, sustenance of the Christian walk, we pray, Lord, that we would be people that are committed to this, that we would be known as the people of the book. Uh, Father, this is uh, the great privilege for us to have this uh, and to have it so readily available. Thank you, Father, for your mercy and your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to start off by reading Psalm 1. And uh, if you want to follow along, please do. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." So this morning we are starting, as we will be uh, looking at this for the next two, three weeks, our little series on whole discipleship. Now, uh, my brother, Pastor Thomas, uh, is, I think, the architect of such a title, Whole Disciple, uh, and I know what he means, but I think it's a little bit misleading. Uh, we say whole disciple in the sense that uh, we might get the idea that it's possible to be an incomplete disciple that it's okay, that we are uh, not arrived in a sense. 
But I think that what we're going to see as we go through these next few weeks is that the intention from our Lord is that we would be whole disciples. That in fact, uh, God does not require us to achieve a certain level of maturity all at once. It's okay to grow in Christ. We're all there. We've all been there where we are in our first day of our new walk with Jesus. We're in our first year. We're in our first decade and so forth. And continuously and without cessation, we are growing and growing and adding to our experience, adding to our knowledge, uh, becoming more and more like Christ. The problem comes when we set an artificial shelf, uh, a limitation, if you will, of what it means to be a Christian. We say, well, I like all the benefits of Christianity. I want eternal life. I want to have a walk with the Holy Spirit. I want to uh, be more like Christ to a certain point. Then you begin to encroach upon what is my true identity. Uh, I've known way too many believers think that it's okay if I go this far, but no further. Uh, that's why it's possible to meet people who call themselves saints of the Lord, who've been Christians for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and yet show really sad progress in this area. Typically, it's because we realize that to go further in Christ means that I will have to give up certain practices in my life, sinful practices. I might have to start giving in a faithful way. I might have to give up some of the uh, habits that I have that I so enjoy, uh, or maybe we're just afraid. We're afraid of what our neighbors will say, what our family will say, if we actually begin to uh, appear to be church people. Uh, people who read the Bible, people who pray, people who are missional and they reach out to their friends and neighbors. And so therefore we set a goal and we say, no, I'm stopped here. This is the far as I want to go. I think I've told this story before, but uh, it kind of illustrates what I'm saying. I was uh, back in my first pastorate in Nebraska. I was out swimming in the morning. I, I wanted to get some exercise. So I went to the public pool, and I would spend the morning swimming laps, and um, one of my uh, church people were there, a, a lady who I really uh, had respect for. Um, I had her daughter uh, in my youth program, and she had a boyfriend. This boyfriend was a guy that I was discipling. Uh, he was just a tremendous young man. And uh, as I was swimming laps, I could hear her calling me, so I stopped, and she just kind of bounced over to me on the water, and she was just like, uh, Dave, I got a problem, and I need your help. And I said, what is it? She says, well, my, my daughter is dating this guy that you're discipling, and I've got a problem. He wants to go into ministry. Okay, why is that a problem? Well, she said, well, he wants to be a youth pastor, just like you. I said, okay. And she says, well, he wants to marry our daughter. I said, okay. And she's like, well, do you know how little youth pastors make? <laughs> no, tell me what that's like. I, I have no idea whatsoever. But, you know, for her, it was a limitation. It was like, uh, we, we want to be Christians. We want to go this far. But 
let's not get crazy. You know, let's not go 100% here. We've got to think through this a little bit better. And I, I think I was more shocked than anything, and I was very gracious in my response. But, you know, it's, we have to do what the Lord shows us to do. We have to be whole disciples. It's a very good term to think about. I want to be all that Christ has for me. And in that vein of thought, we want to be people of the book. Uh, as we are looking at it this morning, we want to be people that understand the word. Christ has, and the apostles have a lot to say for people who think that they can stop their progress at a certain point, or in fact, don't even get started because they have limitations. They, they bring a limitation to their Christian experience. Jesus had a young man that wanted to uh, pursue and follow him and become a disciple, but yet he had to take care of some family responsibilities. And what's Jesus' response? Let the dead bury the dead. Peter had a young couple that decided they wanted the uh, claim of giving a lot of money to the church. But they lied about it just so that they could be uh, seen as being faithful people when in fact they weren't. And Peter says to the wife, just as you saw these young men carry your husband out of here dead, so you will find yourself in the same situation. The Apostle Paul says, Demas loves this present world in the book of Timothy. And so therefore, he's left me. He's deserted me. Again, he says about a couple other recalcitrant disciples, you know, they, uh, these are people that I am committing to the destruction of the flesh. Uh, there is no room for an incomplete disciple not one at least willfully incomplete. We all struggle, we all try to make progress, but our goal is to be whole disciples. So when we think about the Bible and we think about coming to the Word, many of us are intimidated. That's uh, not been our habit. We're not readers. We're not people who study. Uh, that just doesn't come naturally to us. And so when we open up the Word of God, it just seems so intimidating. Well, this morning is going to be our goal to understand why we should be motivated, but secondly, how to make that progress. We of all people, when I say we, I mean Protestant Christians, of all people ought to be excited about being in the Word of God. It's our heritage. Um, it's our heritage as Protestants to have great respect for this Word. Uh, Martin Luther, who started the Reformation, back in the 1500s that we celebrated a couple years ago with the 500th anniversary uh, when he broke away from what was at that time a corrupt church, uh, he focused on the Word of God. The, one of the hallmarks of the Reformation is that we have access to the very words of God, that the Bible is available uh, in a language that we can read that is for us. And we take that for granted today. Uh, we have it in so many ways. We have it in print, we have it in our phones, we have it on computers. There's really no excuse for us not to be in the Word of God. But it began with Martin Luther. Back in 1522, he translated the Greek New Testament into German, everyday German. Now, this wasn't the first German translation designed for the people. Uh, one had preceded it, but it was a translation of the Latin, which was a translation of the original languages of Hebrew and Greek and so forth, a very stilted German. Uh, people just couldn't really read it. It was a bad translation. 
But Luther, if anything, was a man of the people. He was an extreme person, uh, like many geniuses, but he did understand how the common man thought and how he spoke. So when he translated the Bible from its original languages into German, it was a very forceful German. It was the kind of German that the people, the peasants, could read and understand and get behind. They loved it. It went from 1534, when he published both the Old and the New Testament with the Apocrypha together, all the way to 1574, they published over 100,000 editions of this Bible. Uh, thankfully, this coincided with the invention of the printing press, and it wasn't too long until almost every Protestant German had, a, for the first time, a copy of the Word of God in their own home. That's amazing. I mean, that's just something that's common practice in our homes today. But back then, for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, you couldn't get your hands on the Bible. It was almost impossible. The, the effort that it took to copy it from one manuscript to the next that it had to be done by hand, it had to be accurate and so forth, meant that really only those who were professional church people, uh, priests and so forth, actually had access to the word of God. You as a common person would have been totally reliant upon the guy preaching the word for you to have understanding. And in fact, most village preachers didn't even have access to a copy of the Bible. Oh, sure, they had little scraps and they had sections and parts that they had memorized. Uh, they relied much more on the memorized word than we could ever dream of today. But now, from this time, when Luther translated this, people actually had versions of the Bible. Luther actually writes in the preface of his German edition of the Bible, and I quote him, it was our intention and hope when we ourselves began to translate the Bible into German that there should be less writing, and here he's referencing all the books that have been written about the Bible, and instead more studying and reading of the scriptures. For all other writing is to lead the way into and point towards the scriptures, as John the Baptist did towards Christ, saying, he must increase, but I must decrease, in order that each person may drink of the fresh spring himself, as all those fathers who wanted to accomplish something good had to do. Luther is basically saying, all of the church fathers from Augustine to Tertullian to Irenaeus and so forth, they're rejoicing at the fact that the people finally have the word. Firstly, you should know that the Holy Scriptures constitute a book which turns the wisdom of all other books into foolishness because not one teaches about what? Eternal life, except this one alone. Therefore, you should straightway despair of your reason and understanding. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what I think. It only matters what the Word of God has to say. And now we can discover that on our own. With them... You will not attain eternal life, that is, with those who reason and think, but on the contrary, your presumptuousness will plunge you and others with you out of heaven, as happened to Lucifer, into the abyss of hell. I told you Luther had a way of turning a phrase. But kneel down in your little room and pray to God with real humility and earnestness that he through his dear son may give you his Holy Spirit 
who will enlighten you, lead you, and give you understanding. It was so crucial. I, I just don't think it's almost possible for us to understand what a bombshell this was when the Bible exploded on the scene. So many people could read it. So many people had access to it. And for the first time, people began to judge those who were supposed to be leading them in the word and teaching them about God with their own evaluative process because they could read the Bible for themselves. This was the true fuel for that reformation that caused us and allowed us to have people for the first time say, I have confidence in that what I believe about God is truth because I have the Bible right in front of me. Now, we're in the opposite situation. As I said earlier, we have so many Bibles available, so many translations are in front of us, and yet biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high in this country. Instead, you would think, historically, that it would just be continue to ascend, that people who could read the Bible, spend time in the Bible, who read it regularly, would just be going up and up and up with all of the availability that we have. But the truth is, we peaked. We peaked somewhere around the mid-20th century in people accessing the Word of God, and it has begun to go down steadily ever since. Now, there could be many reasons for that. Uh, I personally would probably subscribe to the belief that people just don't think that they need to read it anymore that it's not a relevant manuscript for what they deal with in life. And that failing, that misunderstanding of the truth of that is really due to us, those of us who frequent the church, those of us who claim a relationship with Christ, because we're not showing that we believe the Bible has a relevancy to our everyday life. Well, Luther even gave his people directions. How do we handle the Bible? You have to remember... Getting the Bible is one thing. Having it available is one thing. But knowing how to use it, how to make it a truly life-giving document, is something altogether different. We read it, we look at it. What do we do with it? Uh, our family, we gather around it. We open it up. There it is, in the vernacular German. And how do I read it? Where do I start? What do I do? How does my family get into it? Well, Luther writes this. Secondly, you need to meditate. He had already told them, just get into it, to read it. But now he's telling them, secondly, you meditate. That is, not only in your heart, but also externally, by actually repeating and comparing oral speech and literal words of the book, reading and rereading them with diligent attention and reflection so that you may see what the Holy Spirit means by them. When you read the Bible, he's saying, don't just do a cursory reading. Don't just come to it like a recipe book and read two verses and say, oh, I'm done. Read it and reread it. Immerse yourself into it. It's so cold this morning. <laughs> when I owned it and I got in the car, I was like, oh, this is colder than I've experienced yet this year. And it just brought me back to my uh, ninth grade year when I was uh, swimming, and we had a Red Cross 10-mile swim challenge in our school. And, you know, one of those deals that so often happens in life where on the first morning, Monday morning, we reported to the swimming pool. It was my friend Jerry had uh, convicted me that I need to do this and that we would be, have fun doing it. And there were like 100 kids out. 
And what you do is you swam up lane one, down two, up three, down four, up five, down six, get out and repeat, do that like six times, and that's a quarter of a mile. So to get to 10 miles, you can understand this is going to take everything you have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. By Tuesday, I think we were down to half the people. By Thursday, there were only 10 of us left. And by Friday morning, it was just my friend Jerry and two other people that finished that 10 miles. And the thing was, this is in January in Omaha. This is in the early 70s. And uh, if you remember the weather in those years, it, we had severe winters. And I, I was just telling my wife, I can remember standing out under the street light. It's, you know, pitch dark early in the morning. And my friend Jerry is coming down the hill and I'm waiting for him. It's snow up to my thighs. And my only thought is, Dave, you are so stupid. What in the world are you doing out here? Well, the point was I was pursuing it. I wanted to do it. Uh, I immersed myself into it. When you jump into a pool of water, yeah, some of you do on a regular basis, you, you, you sense that there's something greater than you, that you are traversing through something that uh, takes effort. And indeed, it takes effort. Luther is saying, jump into this Bible, just like a pool of water. Let it splash over you. Let it immerse you. Get into it. Reread it and read it and read it. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you through it. It can't happen just by reading one verse, one chapter. You have to be in it. And then he says this, And take care that you do not grow weary or think that you have done enough when you have read, heard, and spoken these words once or twice, and that you have complete understanding. You will never be particularly a good theologian if you do that, for you will be like untimely fruit, which falls to the ground before it has ripened. Well, we don't want to be untimely fruit, do we? We want to be in the Word of God. The Reformation's, one of its main tenets, its cardinal tenets, was sola scriptura, meaning the Word alone. So important to what we believe. He's basically saying, it doesn't really matter what you think, what I think about anything about God. It matters what the Word says. I had a guy who I was kind of debating facts of Christianity with. He uh, went to church, uh, considered himself a believer, a Christian, but by the way he lived his life, I challenged him on that. I didn't think he did. I didn't think he was a believer. But as we were talking and he, we were getting into a rather heated debate, he kept saying to me things like, well, in my opinion, this is what I think. Uh, this is how I would approach it. And I finally just had enough of that. And I said to him, you know, it really doesn't matter what you think or what your opinion is, nor does it matter what my opinion is. What matters is what the Bible actually says. You see, there's only one source of direct divine revelation. It's not in the stars. It's not in the sun or the moon. It's not in tea leaves. It's not in tarot cards. It's not in a Ouija board. It's not in things said on TV or on the radio. It's right here in the Bible. If you want to know what God's opinion is on something, look it up. Read it. Digest it. Take in the whole counsel of the Word of God. 
That's the only place that we can really truly understand the Bible. The man didn't like me saying that. Yeah, he said, well, I think we're supposed to bring our intelligence, our wit, our, our experience to the Bible when we read it. And I said, well, all those things are fine, but they don't supplant it. They're not above it. They are submitted to it. The only thing that we can bring to the Word is a humble curiosity, is a willingness to hear from the Holy Spirit. It's not the training that we have. You see, that's yet another limitation we bring to the Word. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's so important to have that attitude to this Bible. It is our lifeblood. When we teach our children, when we try to have family instruction, when we witness to our friends at work or at school, they don't want to hear from us. They want to hear from God. We are the vehicle. We empty ourselves of all the things that the world has put into us so that we have room to communicate what God has to say. And we don't do this through some mystical sense of spirituality. We do this because we have a hard and fast understanding of what the Word of God teaches. We have put ourselves in the path of those who have experience in doing so, but also because we have taken our own personal time and put ourselves in the path of the Word of God. This is it. As far as I am aware, there is no other publication out there, no other source, no other oracle in which we can learn about God other than this Word. Sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking there is other things, but that's just not the case. It's the Bible. And as difficult as it may be to read, and as uh, some parts are actually somewhat boring for us today, still, it is the place. There is no other place to go. And people need to know that's where we're getting our opinions, if that's what you wish to call them. Sometimes I have people say to me another objection or limitation that they have is that, well, the Bible is so difficult to interpret. For every verse in there, there are 15 different interpretations. So what's the sense of studying it? Everybody can make it say whatever they want it to say. Uh, no one knows what it means for sure, and by such a conclusion, people then say it's worthless to read. It doesn't make any difference. People abuse and use this scripture. The problem with this is that most believers are not aware that we have a definitive interpretive boundaries. Uh, we have things that we may and may not say about the doctrines that are revealed in Scripture. True. You look at the Bible, and if all you do is bring yourself to it and you start reading through here, you might say, well, this is what God is saying to me. And you're welcome to do so. I encourage that. Uh, boy, what is God saying? But there are limitations on that. You're not free to make just any kind of interpretive statement that you wish. Uh, the theology that you derive from such reading has to fit within the boundaries of Orthodox Christianity. And unfortunately, in Protestant world, we often are rather ignorant of the fact that there are and there have been 
very learned people who've read this, who've decided as a church, this is what the Bible says. This is what constitutes Orthodox Christianity. Uh, things like the Apostles' Creed, uh, Irenaeus' Confession, uh, the Nicene Creed, and so forth, the different confessions. And as we've gone through the last 2,000 years of Christianity, we actually have these boundaries. We can't go to the left of them. We can't go to the right of them. To do so would take you immediately outside of the realm of an orthodox, uh, truth-speaking and understanding Christian. Now, within that borders, there's a lot of room. And so, therefore, we do have debates of interpretation. Um, Calvinism versus Arminianism, infant versus adult baptism, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, amil, mid-trib, you know, so forth. And you say, well, there's a lot of... Well, yeah, they are, but they're within a certain realm. 90% of what the orthodox beliefs of Christianity are agreed upon by all Christians through all time since the time of Christ. Such as... There's no debate that the Old Testament predicts and foretells of a coming Messiah. From the book of Genesis all the way through Malachi, we are told that there's something coming, that God has a way of redemption coming through his special anointed person. The New Testament opens up and the Gospels are the story of Jesus of Nazareth that are in almost complete harmonious agreement with each other, telling us the story of this man who came who is in fact that Messiah that was predicted from the Old Testament. The book of Acts is the story of the church. What did they do with that knowledge and understanding of this Jesus who went to the cross, who died for our sins and atoned for them? He was a propitiation for us through his blood, who died and was resurrected, and the church exploded with this knowledge, traveling all over the world with it. You have the Apostle Paul's epistles, his letters to the various churches, spelling out the theology of what we believe. And finally, the Bible closes with the book of Revelation. And we have an understanding that it's not over yet. There's more coming. We agree on this. There's 100% agreement on this. And you say, well, I, I, all I have to do is watch TV. And I can uh, see people who are churchmen and denominational leaders who take exception with some of the things that you call cardinal doctrines, Dave. And I say this, this is not the first time there's been false teachers. You say, well, are you calling them false teachers? Let me make sure that I'm communicating accurately what I'm trying to say here. Absolutely. People get up and say things that are just flat not true. They're not in the word of God. It's kind of like the interpretation of the Constitution. Well, this is what they wrote, but here's how I'm going to interpret it. And some people come to the Word of God, and they make it say what they want it to say. They don't let it speak for itself, because the Word that God is speaking just doesn't fit with our day and age. It's antiquated. It's not uh, ready for what we're dealing with today, and I would, I would take extreme disagreement with that. The Bible is for all time. It's valuable, always. God doesn't change his opinion. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And his Bible reflects that. You may not like it. You may don't have to agree with what he says, but you can't dispute this is what he is saying. 
In the Old Testament, we saw prophets who stood up before kings and peoples, and they tried to say, this is what God says. They were false prophets. And the real prophets would come along and say, don't listen to them. They are not speaking truth. In the New Testament, page after page is telling us, beware of false teachers. We had Dave Asprey up here just a second ago, leading us in confession. He's one of our elders, and one of the main jobs our elders have at this church and in all churches, should be protecting us from false teachers. They have to know the word of God. That's what really confirms them as elders, is they're well-versed in it. So that anybody who would stand up, and that includes us as pastors, and preach something that is false doctrine, that's their job to say, no, that's not truth, and not to allow that. You see, there is harmony in Christianity, and is based on this word we have to believe it we have to know what that Bible is saying it's so important to us as believers well you, you can say anything else that you want that reveal limitations to this Bible that we have problem with in our society with us personally but the Bible is what the Bible always has been the Bible you hold in your hands today is historically accurate. I was going to bring with me in here this morning and I decided it'd just be too much, but like a copy of some of the latest Greek translations of scripture that we have, the references, and you can look at like the Cambridge edition today, uh, put together by a supercomputer. It takes into account all of the different extant manuscripts of the Bible that have been available for the last 2,000 years, and we find new ones every day, but it takes them, and it puts them together, <coughs> excuse me, into one cohesive New Testament. I think that today, more than any other time in church history, when we look at this Bible and we read it, even in an English translation, we can have confidence that what we're reading is almost exactly the words that the original manuscripts gave us. When it says that Jesus said this, I think we should be able to take that with extreme confidence that it is true. Our New Testament is an amazing, amazing document. The Old Testament has been verified uh, by such things as the Dead Sea Scroll. This, this Bible is accurate. It's complete. It's amazing. So, this is our inheritance. We have the word. Why aren't we reusing it? Why aren't we promoting it? Why does Bible illiteracy exist to the state that it does? And I think I've mentioned this before. Uh, one of the hubs of that biblical illiteracy is right here in this part of Iowa. That study was done 10 years ago, and it showed that the Cedar Rapids area is the hub of biblical illiteracy. Isn't that amazing? Here in conservative Midwestville, we are the ones that are uh, out there the most as far as not using our Bibles and not having knowledge of them. What a job we have before us. When we look in the Psalms, as I said, I, I opened up by reading Psalm 1. Let's just take a look at it. Uh, it's a contrast of two men, the righteous man and the man who is ungodly or wicked. And This is wisdom literature. The Psalms exist alongside of Job and Proverbs and so forth 
And in the ancient Jewish uh, collection of scripture, this was all listed under wisdom literature. Uh, this is stuff that we should be able to train us in our own lives. It's not just poetry. It has real applicable substance to it. So blessed is the man. Who? The righteous man. And what does he do? Well, it gives us three repetitive statements of what he does. <coughs> in this case, it's in a neg negative he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Uh, to walk in the counsel of the wicked means his complicity. I, I am putting in my, my uh, confidence to those who are not walking in the ways of God, nor does he stand in the way of sinners. He's not going to be someone that takes a place at a table where sin is being discussed, where evil is plotted, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. He's not going to be rejecting God. But his delight, by contrast, what? Is in the law of the Lord. Three things. He delights in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it. When? Day and night. He delights in the law of the Lord. He takes great pleasure. It's an emotional response to the Bible. Now, you have to remember when David, King David, is writing this first psalm, uh, he didn't have the entire Bible at his disposal, as I was mentioning earlier. He probably only had the first five books. The Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And as you and I read the Bible, sometimes we look at it and we go, ugh, I, I avoid those books. They're too detailed, too tedious, too mundane. Who cares how many yards of cloth material they had to use for the curtains in the tabernacle or what the fittings of the brass pieces were for the different parts of that tabernacle and the sins that were listed. Maybe they're just a little archaic and we don't have to abide by those today. All these different reasons we don't want to get into it. But look at what David says. He delights in the law of the Lord. Every part of Scripture you can delight in. As I started reading through the Bible, I read through it for the first time in my senior year in high school. I started in Genesis. I'd never done this before. And I just read through through Revelation. I, I can't commend that to you enough. That is a great way to read the Word. But if you haven't done that, at least do that once in your life. Maybe read through it in a year or so forth. Uh, at the end of the service today, uh, Doug Fern is going to explain to you a little bit about our reading plan coming up. That's another way of doing that, uh, an excellent way. But spend time in the Lord, because when you read the Bible, it just delights your soul. You can't help but have an emotional response to it. And what is he doing? He's meditating. Remember Luther said this, read and reread and reread and study it until you're, you're into it night and day. That is amazing. Um, I often get up in the middle of the night, especially when I'm troubled by something. I'm, I'm worried. I'm uh, just full of anxiety about an issue. And I open up the Bible, and immediately it calms me down because it reminds me that Jesus is the person that has all of my problems. He takes them, according to Philippians chapter 4, his peace will keep my heart and mind through Christ Jesus. I love it. So that's who the righteous man is. He's like a tree, it says in verse 3, planted by streams of water. When you become a person of the word, God blesses you. 
What, what happens to a tree planted by water? It blooms. It puts forth its greenery. It's healthy. It's strong. It bears fruit. He's planted by the streams of water, and it yields fruit in its season. It never withers. That long as that water is there, and the stream of water in our lives is this Bible. The wicked are not so. Here's the contrast, right? Here's the contrast. The wicked or ungodly person are not like that, uh, but they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Um, the contrast with the righteous man is done also in a, a triad of statements. Therefore, the wicked, what? Will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners will stand in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, and thirdly, the way of the wicked will perish. The person who's not in the word of God, the person who doesn't delight in the law, they're condemned. So when we talk about hold disciple. Who are we in Christ? Who are we in the Word? We have to be in the Bible. That is what keeps us strong and healthy. Uh, when I was a young pastor, our, our, one of my churches uh, decided to bless me and the rest of the staff. There's only two of us. And uh, on Pastor Appreciation Month, which I think is in October, they, uh, had, they usually were so generous. They gave us all kinds of stuff, you know, gift cards and so forth. But this particular year, you just got this sense that something was going on. It was a surprise. They took the other pastor and I. They led us to a window of the church. There was a ceremony. They read these particular verses. And I was like, wow, what is this that they're giving us? Must be exciting. Must be an amazing thing. And so with great triumph and flourish, they had us look out the window. And there were two trees planted there. Now, at the time, I confess, I was a little disappointed. I was like, what? My father-in-law was a pastor, and one of his big uh, things that he always talked about was how his church in North Dakota one year gave him a car. It was amazing. And so, you know, just with the buildup, I was just like, wow, what is this going to be? And it was a little sapling, like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree, just newly planted, but when you understood what their hearts were, that they were trying to say that you and the other pastor are like trees planted that give our church strength, that can be relied upon, that will be in season and out of season, something for us to focus on. It, it really was kind of a cool ceremony. Now, last time I was back to the church, their church had continued to grow and they needed that space, and so the trees had actually been uprooted. I don't know what that means about us, and I guess <laughs> we had moved, so what can I tell you? But they had replanted them. They had replanted. It was still a cool thing. So we, we want to be like that tree. We want to be healthy and strong, like the tree planted by water. So what do we do with this? Well, there's three things. As I was reading through one of the commentators on the book of Psalms, a guy by the name of Spurgeon, a Victorian-era preacher who I love. If Luther had a way with a phrase, Spurgeon is just like him. They're just are amazing writers. But he speaks about the fact that when it comes to the Bible, there are those of us who are fed by the milk, that we're, we're young or infant Christians. There are those of us who are growing in Christ and making progress, and then there are those of us who are mature. So I thought I would close this morning by focusing on the fact that if you're an infant in Christ this morning, if you're new in your walk, 
or if for some reason your walk in Christ got derailed at some point, and it may have been years ago, if not decades ago, pick it back up. Get running with it. And the easiest way to do that is with these reading plans, like we're turning out today. Uh, grab a hold of something that allows you to start reading through Scripture and learn how to do that well. Pray before you start reading, asking the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and to bring uh, his knowledge and his encouragement to you as you read this word. Don't just kind of wade into it with a dictionary or a commentary and think that you're going to interpret it correctly. That's not the goal at this point. Right now, you just need to get familiar with the word. Understand the layout of scripture, where it is and where it can be. One of the, the things that I like to disciple my young men in when I, when I did discipleship with teenagers was to get them so they could use the word, not just have a Bible, but use it. Understand where they could turn to it when they needed help in this area or that area. Uh, be able to defend it, defend Christianity, be a man of faith. And so you have to get immersed into it. Like I said, you're jumping into a pool of water and you want to be able to command it. Uh, swim in those lanes and so you have understanding of where you're going, where you don't want to be. Too often people will take the Bible and say, well, I want to start reading. So they just plop it open. Uh, one of my favorite professors in seminary, Howard Hendricks, said that's what happened to him. He became a believer, and the man said, you need to be reading the Bible. And so he went home, and he took his Bible that they gave to him for free, and he flopped it open. And it opened up to the book of Isaiah. And of course, he had no ability to understand that or to interpret it. And so he figured that he just didn't match up. He wasn't a good Christian. So he, in great despair and depression, closed his Bible, and he didn't open it for two years. And as he called it, that was two years of his life wasted. Now, Howard Hendricks, when I had him, was one of the most profound Bible expositors I had ever met. And he spent the rest of his life studying the Word of God. But you see, the enemy will do everything he can to get you off track, to get to where you feel like you're not the same kind of Christian others are. Dave, you're a pastor. Of course, you're in the Bible. But you can be in the Bible and read the Bible even as a new believer. So do that. That's your first step. Secondly, if you're on that road to maturity, then do something with that. Don't just read the Bible. Take that next step. Get involved in a Bible study. You know, uh, Parkview has, uh, for women, uh, Bible Study Fellowship, BSF, meets here every Tuesday. For men, up at Grace Church on Monday nights. Uh, get involved in something. There's women like uh, my wife and some other very able women teach an uh, inductive Bible study. Get involved with those. Now, some of those take some time. Yes, there's no doubt. Uh, my wife's lesson takes 50 lessons. It can take three years to get through that. So... That, what, what greater book is there to get immersed into than that? What else do you do in your life in which requires preparation and skill in doing, whether that's your career or uh, sports or anything else that doesn't take practice over and over again? Get into the Word. Do not just leave it sit there. Do not just read it. Become a very good student of it so that you can use it to minister to others. That's the road to maturity. And even if you've been through a, a one Bible study, get into another one. We have all kinds of Bible studies going on here at Parkview all the time. There's no excuse for not being involved with one. And then lastly, 
for those of you who are really wanting the meat of the word, uh, take that next step. Get involved into the history of the word, the languages of the word. There's always something more that we can do. Uh, but in all of this, be in prayer. Ask God to open it up to you. And I just want to close this morning by just speaking to one special demographic of people, and that is those of you who may still be in high school or college, and you say, well, I love the Word of God, and I'm ready to do something more. Maybe you sense God's calling in your life. That's when I felt God's calling in my life. I was watching my pastor preach through the Psalms on a Wednesday night. Uh, I, I took the challenge uh, to go to the Wednesday night prayer group in our church. Almost nobody attended it, but several of us did. And I watched him open this Bible, and as he went through these psalms, I felt my heart exploding inside my chest as I just thought, of, this is so amazing. I wonder if the world knows the truths of these verses. And I felt like God was calling me at that moment that I should be giving my life to this. And so if you find yourself at that phase of life, and God is calling you, come talk to one of us on staff, one of our elders, somebody you know that's mature in Christ and ask them if they have also sensed that God is calling you in this pathway. Maybe you're one of those who is d destined by the Lord through his Holy Spirit to open up the word and to regularly encourage God's people by teaching from the word. Man, we need you today. We need you to do that. So pray about that. Be people of the word. Be people of the book. We want to be whole disciples they must be holy in the word. There is no other place that we can go to find the truth of God than this book here. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, I am so inadequate to teach your Bible. There's no amount of training, education, academia that can prepare a person to be used by you in holy obedience except through the maturing process of your Holy Spirit. Father, there are those that you're calling into this ministry, those that are you're calling to take that next step. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be obedient in doing so. Let us respond to your calling, Lord. We need a whole group of harvesters who have been trained and skilled in reaching their generation with this word. Father, may we remove that onus of being an illiterate region of the country. And may we teach our community the truths of the word. May we be proud to have it in our possession. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.